We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Welcome to Land Decolonized, a podcast that explores the practical side of the Framework Agreement on First Nation Land Management in Canada. I'm Richard Perry. Getting out from under the Indian Act is a phrase you'll hear frequently when speaking with communities that have taken back control of their lands. Doquis First Nation in French River, Ontario is a good example of that. Doquis is recognized for its leadership in creating clean, green energy, I spoke recently with Chief Jerry Duquette Jr. to find out how it's all come about. And joining me now is Chief Jerry Duquette Jr. from Doki's First Nation. Chief, welcome to the podcast. Well, I thank you very much, Richard. Pleased to be here. I take it summer has arrived in your neck of the woods? It has. Uh, and uh, did uh, receive some complaints uh, from band members on black flies and mosquitoes, <laughs> but I uh, still haven't uh, got that one down path yet, so... Well, we've got that happening out here in the East, too, but probably not as bad as you guys where you are. So, uh, Land Code, we met in Winnipeg two years ago, and you were very excited and enthusiastic about what the Land Code has done for your community. Before we get to that, can you help our listeners get to know you a bit better and just tell us about uh, where you grew up and how you came to be where you're living right now? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up uh, within uh, three communities uh, for myself. Uh, I, I always say, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, when I was uh, younger, my parents um, were separated, but I always uh, bounced back between uh, three homes. And my three homes was at my dad's in, in Manetteville, and uh, my mom's in Nuovo, and here in Doquis, First Nation. And uh, I always had this, uh, this sense of... Uh, when you call a home, it's home. It's not a square building, but so I always had the, the little town uh, of Nuovo where I grew up, went to school, went to high school, and I spent all my summers here on the First Nation. Um, uh, great that now I, I live and my my two boys and my wife uh, are able to live here in Doquis because it's the best place. Uh, we're about 28 kilometers off the highway down a dirt road, and you become uh, if you could ever come down here, say, so is this road ever going to end? But once you get to the end, uh, we're on the upper French River, but surrounded by the lower French and uh, the lower French. So it's a great place to, to be. And I think I remember reading that you've got, what, 90 to 100 homes or thereabouts? Yes, I think we're almost at the 105 right now. And uh, this year, uh, the band, we're putting up two new rentals and a triplex. So five new homes going up. Uh, we, we just uh, have a, two, uh, a duplex that just went up last year. So we're building. Uh, we're in the midst of our new water system. So that's a big project on our way and redoing the pavement. So you come down a dirt road and you come to Dokis and we got pavement. So and it's just a, a little bit of bonus for people uh, for dust. Uh, and riding your bikes. <laughs> How to be a kid again, eh? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, had you always been involved in, in band politics, or did you come to that a bit later? Uh, a little later. Um, living with my grandfather uh, and my grandmother uh, through all these years, uh, he was, uh, our, well, when he passed away in 2013, he was our deputy chief, but he, he was on council for over 40 years. I was asked uh, on numerous occasions to, to be on council, and I said no. Uh, and in 2012, my grandpa asked me, keep your name. And he says, my last year, I will be turning 80. 
so I did. I didn't. Uh, I just put it there, and uh, I was elected on council. Uh, unfortunately, my grandfather passed away in 2013. Um, but he gave us a good list, and I'm, I'm still with that. Uh, the following uh, election in 2014, I became deputy chief uh, where my grandfather had passed away uh, as our deputy chief. And uh, so I was like, okay, uh, thanks. And I kept talking to him, what do you do to me? Uh, and a funny story of our former chief, uh, Denise Restel. She was our chief for 10 years and was doing a fantastic job. And uh, we were on a flight uh, to Vancouver Island, and she kept asking me, are you going to run in 2016? I said, yeah, I'll run for council. And she's like, no, you're going to run for chief. I was like, no, I'm not running for chief. And she, she's like, oh, I want to retire. Please run for chief. And so I, I've been chief of, uh, of our community since uh, 2016, and uh, I'm still enjoying it. How many people live there? Um, in the summertime, we almost go up to, I would say, in uh, 350 to almost 400 because people bring, uh, come home for the summertime, live at their cabins uh, and their cottage. Uh, but in the wintertime, we're close to about, uh, or seasonally, 250. Okay. Um, uh- yeah, uh, land code. Let's let's go back. When uh, did your community sign on to the land code process to get into that what they call developmental stage? We signed on uh, way back in 2003. Uh, I do believe it was in March uh, 2003, um, and it took us a little while to get going. Uh, there was no one uh, in place uh, at that time, and our chief, uh, who had signed it, uh, Bill Restool, uh, approached me. I was uh, working off reserve, and he said, "Did we? Did you go to school for land management?" I said, "Yes, I did." Uh, that I was going to university. He said, "Well, we have a, a position here. If you're if you're looking for it, uh, you know, f- send in your application." And lo and behold, I became the lands coordinator uh, for the band. Yeah, and then we went through uh, different phases uh, of the code, when, uh, and we went finally to a, our final final vote, and we passed it in 2013, and we came operational uh, April 1st, 2014. So there was quite a gap between when you initially became engaged with the process and then when, when things were finally ratified. Yes, there was a change in council, uh, so the the next council wanted to be uh, assured that this was something that uh, they wanted. Uh, it's not that we didn't want to vote earlier. Uh, we did actually have two prior vote, and uh, the first vote uh, became in, um, it was a February uh, stormy uh, ice storm. People were saying, I can't, uh, I can't attend to vote, and, and, and then they didn't have online voting. It wasn't uh, available, and unfortunately, uh, it was a positive vote, but we didn't meet the threshold and we did a second vote. Um, and also, unfortunately, um, one of our elders had passed away on that final day of the vote. So I did not feel comfortable going around and asking people to vote because uh, that was my only my own family member also. So they put it at rest. And they said, OK, so uh, but the community kept asking because it was actually still a positive vote. Um, and then we uh, we started the uh, Okikenda Hydro Project uh, that was started a long time ago. But in order to us to fulfill it, uh, we want to secure our land management. So we would be at the table and then be in charge uh, of our own destiny. So we voted and it was an overwhelming yes vote. Um, I do believe uh, out of the uh, total membership that voted, it was over in over 300 and some a vote. And uh, there was very minimal that people said no. So it was great. That ratification process must place some pretty serious demands on on council to to get the right information out there at the right time. What was your strategy back then? 
Back then, uh, we did some uh, community meetings here in, in Dokis. Uh, we also uh, fanned out uh, in the Subway North Bay, uh, which is about 120 kilometers away, an hour and a half uh, drive in the town of Sturgeon Falls and in southern Ontario. Um, a lot of our members uh, live, we're about 1,300 uh, membership. And like I said, the 250 live here in the wintertime, so it, it's mostly off reserve. Uh, at, that, at that time, I, I do believe there was 963 or 993, whichever numbers, uh, they're eligible voters, but there are 600 of them were off reserve. So our focus was a lot on the off reserve members. Um, and it was sometimes difficult because they said, well, I don't live there and I don't want to change anything. And, uh, you know, we were there, well, because you don't vote, you're not changing anything or you're you're we can change anything because uh, your involvement. So that's a big challenge on the voting uh, systems. And we always see that with Canada, that you don't have 25% of Canada vote for your prime minister or anything uh, that becomes exactly. law. Yeah. And, and getting back to that threshold, that certain requirement, uh, I think that has that not changed since your vote? Yes, it has. Um, actually, uh, two things have changed. Uh, no, because of us, but uh, we always say um, in case there's a, um, an act that you can't do a vote, uh, the verifier and the verification can postpone the vote. Uh, if it's an ice storm uh, or it could be like this year, a pandemic. So there's means to say, well, it's not because we didn't want to have a vote. It's just we couldn't. Uh, we couldn't physically do it. But they did change the, the criteria, and it's up to the First Nation now. They can have their own criteria. Um, we have been doing ratifications here in No Keys, and we have 25% of eligible uh, people, yes, but we changed it to 25% of registered voters, then 50% of those to say yes. Uh, not everybody votes, not everybody wants to be found. Uh, so it, it has changed in for the better, for larger communities um, that are five, six, ten thousand. 10,000, how are you gonna get that many people to actually come to the table and vote? Exactly. And that's, uh, I guess that's another issue around the Indian Act, isn't it? And, and why so many communities now want to get out from under the Indian Act when it comes to governance and, and land management period. Oh, it is. Um, it's been a blessing for us. Uh, we've been moving forward on projects. Uh, we have two quarries. We have a, a, a 10 megawatt hydro project that goes into our trust and community. We've been building, a, a, we have our lands building, our an outside dressing room, a, a rink, a, we're expanding uh, even off-reserve, looking at businesses off-reserve, but uh, to have jurisdiction on your own land is so essential. Um, the community just passed a law on our environmental assessment, so that's what the community wanted. And uh, there's no laws or no protection for the environment under the Indian Act, but our communities want that. So it's, it's so uh, we're more efficient in this way. Yeah. When when you're going through the process, uh, I'm assuming that over the years there was some community ambivalence, I guess, about that. And uh, I wonder why, first of all, maybe some people didn't want to go the land code route. Were there any myths out there that they were uh, susceptible to or did they have some valid concerns? There are some of the myths uh, and, and concerns, and, and uh, I always... I ask those questions. It's great to have them. And, and that's why we want to do community meetings to make sure people's questions are answered. Uh, one, I was like, well, we're, um, we're getting rid of our treaty and it, it could be farther from the truth. It does not impact our treaty rights or our communal rights to hunt fish or land. Um, 
some in the past, well, you're just giving away our land. No, it's actually the total opposite. Uh, the, there's no expropriation clause or, or the province cannot come in and take your land. Uh, so it, it was some myths that, you know, you're selling out and it's actually now that people realize like, wow, we have a lot more power or we can tell companies, no, you have to come to the table. And it's not that we sit at the kiddies table now more. We're at the big table and we're telling, but I think it's more amicable and I do believe that, and, and I see a lot of changes, what the province are dealing with the, the federal government that you sit down, it's more respectful, not just, well, this is what it's yours and you can't say nothing about it. So, yeah. I, I, uh, you were talking about your location earlier, and I have heard that for economic development, it's helpful if First Nation communities are along a major highway. Now, you're not. You've got that dirt road, but you're still able to forge ahead and, and do some projects that benefit Dokies socially and economically. It is. Um, and sometimes we, we see other First Nations, and uh, we look how close they are, and, and you know, some companies, it's, it is far for us, but we look at what's best for us. Um, we have rivers that flow. Uh, there was a, a blasting in our area in the early 1900s for a dam. So we said, we'll just take this opportunity. Uh, the water has to flow still from Lake Nipissing down the upper French River to the Georgian Bay. And we're making money on clean, clean green energy. And I think it's that green energy uh, sector that we can benefit. Um, we have projects set up that we're looking at solar, solar to the community. It's maybe not money that uh, make it as much, but if you're not paying as much for your hydro, it's still the same. Um, we're looking at activities. Uh, we have lots of rocks or quarries. There are uh, construction going in around our area um, that we can benefit from. And we have the river uh, with tourism. And I, I do believe that the community is well-versed in the tourism business. Uh, we have a lot of cottage owners and tourist camps, construction uh, uh, companies and, and crews. So it gives that sense of when you're growing up, uh, what I want to go to school for, you can stay home. You don't have to travel uh, and you can do your, your living here. So yeah, when it, whether it's tourism or another sector, when you sit down with a potential partner, is there a difference in how that happens because you have land code passed compared to when you were under the land provisions of the Indian Act? It truly does um, because you can have guarantees, whether if you're leasing land to a company, uh, it's a true lease. Yeah, there is um, some hard times uh, on First Nations, whether it's a business coming in and, and security sense of, well, is the next council just going to change this? Are they going to have a two-year term and, and then, well, after two years, I'm gone. So this is a sense of security on both parts because if a company comes to a First Nation, you want that stability. You want that buy-in. You want companies to be uh, feel welcome also, but uh, for jobs and its opportunities, if you have a workforce that will be there for a long time under land management, um, you can sign long-term leases with the stipulations that the First Nation and the company agree upon because you're the one negotiating those terms. And uh, I think the term I heard, uh, heard many times is you're doing business at the speed of business and not having to wait for a deputy minister with the ISK now in Ottawa to, you know, keep things moving. 
You're totally correct. Um, I've seen sometimes it's taken over two years to have a permit. Well, people can't wait two years. The, the speed of business is is so, uh, we do now online, you know, you're talking, you're buying and selling homes, uh, whatever you're visiting. And it's to have those contracts uh, available. We have now that uh, we have a small lease area for tourism and, you know, to pay direct online, it's done. We do a renewal every five years and everybody's happy because it's, it's a lot simpler and we can actually, um, do it here in-house. Uh, other businesses, yes, more complicated. You have lawyers involved and, and you should because of uh, uh, liabilities, but it's so faster. Uh, they're not knocking at the next door because it takes too long. Did you ever have a capacity issue in dealing with, you know, I mean, I've looked at the framework agreement and uh, some of the samples and templates that uh, the resource center has online. And there's a wealth of information there, but in a small community, were you able to manage that volume of information that you, you consider when you're looking at a land code? That is something um, for the, the resource center and the lands advisory board are fantastic and all the first nations that are in land management uh, or are in self-government are so willing to share and uh, give those examples of um, policies or, or permits and laws and, and bylaws uh, it is a challenging I, I was the only one and we do only have one person right now uh, doing the lands so that is challenging because all the demand is on that person when new homes are coming built uh, and, and not just companies so a member comes I want to build a home where's my lot? How do I get this? I want to survey. So, and you're the only person that, that does it all. So the capacity issue, it is uh, always there. Um, I hope that in, in the near future with different fundings or different funding arrangements that we show Canada that we're doing business faster than you can. And no disrespect to, to, to Canada or the workers there because they have great workers, uh, but it's just at home here. Uh, having extra people, extra bodies in place uh, would be a, a greater asset. Yeah, I think too, I, I brought up capacity, but I, I think you told me a couple of years ago that the beautiful thing about land code, it's not one size fits all. I mean, you can take what you need and what's relevant to your own community. So that must have been a, a tactic that you followed. Yeah, for sure. It's sometimes, um, like right now, we don't have, we're not surrounded by oceans, but in BC and the East Coast, maybe they have ocean protection or different items. So for us, that would not mean anything, but under the Indian Act, it's a one size fits all, but you can design it on your needs and how you're growing. Um, we're doing an industrial park right now in Dokis because that's the, the want or the need of our community. And we're just gearing towards that. Uh, and it just makes it more efficient on the sense of what the community is looking for and where they want us to move forward uh, in the future. So with an industrial park, is that a space that you would lease out to private interests? It would be both. Uh, and, and we're just going off of um, how the community did their 25-year uh, plan, and we're just moving forward. But now we have the capacity of uh, staking those places out, doing the surveys, having the land cleared, and making sure that it, it is done. And there's actually a couple of members that uh, are have their own company off reserve that want to come back and establish here in Dokis, uh, and which is fantastic for us. It's people coming back home, uh, raising their kids back home, and, and being able to do it. Okay. Just two questions uh, to close. The first is, uh, what advice would you give to a First Nation community that's looking at exploring the land code route, as, as many are nowadays? I think it's one in three that are either signed on or in the developmental stage or who are waiting to get on the list. I guess it's nice that there's a wait list. That's right. Um, some advice is 
when you select uh, have have a, a, a good team lead or a person a champion um, that's someone that can understand your land base um, that could speak to, to your members and, and especially to your elders and, and there's there's a lot of uh, knowledge within our communities to actually know how you want to go and it we talk about economic development but there's also areas uh, like we've had we set aside that there's no buildings no areas and it's for medicine picking uh, or, or or harvesting and i think if a person's uh, uh, involved to have those uh, key team members that can go out and, and focus uh to the membership to make sure that the, the right message is out there Good stuff. And the last question is, uh, I'm told that across Canada, the the Lands Advisory Board is approaching 100 communities ratified, and it could very well happen this summer or into the fall. How proud are you of that milestone? Oh, this is something that uh, when you you think about all the hard work that the um, some of the board members are still there, and some of the former board members and all the staff at the RC and, and at the LLB have gone through uh, and, and sitting down and negotiating and going to the parliament and making sure that this is a, a functioning and, and a live document. This is, is astounding, and I, I don't know if uh, people realize the magnitude of this is and, and how much uh, control. Um, self-control also that communities have and it's a it's a very proud moment i I do believe not only for first nation but for canada to make sure that the first peoples can move forward and and be part of everything uh as we should or should have been for a long time well it's great information chief and uh, i sure hope a lot of communities out there take your words of wisdom and uh, explore the land code option thank you so much for your time today this was a pleasure i hope we can do this uh, some other time absolutely thanks again the land decolonized podcast is brought to you by the first nations land management resource center and is supported by the lands advisory board for up-to-date information on the land code including governance tools training materials and much more visit labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.